It is 11 o'clock on this Friday morning. I'm Melanie Alnwick here with the Mansion Murders Trial Podcast along with my colleague Paul Wagner. And Paul, this is the verdict version of the podcast. And probably our last podcast together, right? For this trial. For this let's, trial. Let's hope yeah. there are more. <laughs> Perhaps there are more to come. There's always cases out there. But uh, this one was fascinating. Fascinating uh, case. Terribly, terribly troubling. And um, I think, and I've said to many friends over the last couple of years, the most vicious murder I've ever covered. And, um, I mean, there's others that people have pointed out, but this one has stuck with me from day one. Yeah, and um, it's always been very, very troubling. There's still so many questions um, that we may never get answered. And... Um, uh, they're going to be out there for a long time, like whether he had ever had help. And uh, I was uh, one of the first to say that I don't think he did, and I, I think I'm going to stick with that. Um, based on some information <clears throat> we figured out uh, this week that um, on the timeline... Right. Well, I want to get to that later. We'll get to that, Let's yeah. Let's talk about the jury and the wait for the verdict. I know yesterday... I've spent every day at the courthouse, in the morning at least, waiting, standing by, watching. We're live. What do you need there? Okay. Well, thank you very much. An interruption we, by... It's, it's okay. uh, we have a lot of things going on <laughs> in the studio at this point, and so, of course, uh, this is all just free form. We've got a, we, we record this for replay later on the web, and so that was one of our folks in, in the Tape Operations Center just making sure that everything's ready to go, along with our audio recording and, of course, everyone on Facebook Live. So uh, it, we knew that the jury had a lot to consider. We knew 44 pages of jury instructions, 20 charges to go through. So I think we knew it was going to take some time, but I still think there were some, some nerves. People were getting anxious as day two ticked in. Especially because there weren't any notes. Right. Typically from a jury, you get a note or two or three sometimes because they have questions about the law. And uh, we didn't get any. No notes at all. And right. then suddenly, boom, verdict. Well, and the funny thing is, as I was saying, you know, I've covered this trial every day like you have going through. I, I've got four pages of notes. You and I have been talking about this every single week. And I'm waiting around at the courthouse. It's one o'clock. They go to lunch. And I said, well, all right. I don't know if it's going to happen today. And those of us who were there in the court that day, you know, like you said, you try to kind of get a gauge. Day one, we saw the jury coming out. They were chummy. They were going out in groups, talking, chatting amongst themselves. We'd always seen them seeming to get along very much throughout this process. And then after Tuesday, or I'm sorry, yesterday, when the jury came out for lunch, they didn't seem like they were together. There were mm. people that we had seen walking out before that were walking out separately. You try to read their their faces or their body language, and a couple of us said, "Ooh, this this doesn't look like they're this doesn't look good. They're separate. They're they're." I, I saw a guy standing outside all by himself, thinking, or, you know." But then, so I go home, right? Yeah. I'm like, "All right, I, I don't know what's going to happen." Literally, as I'm walking out the door to go get my kids from school 
I get the email. Yeah. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I can't believe after all, of all this, this time and I can't be there. My head was actually spinning to the point of, can I drop my kids off somewhere and race down to the courthouse? Yeah. Because yeah. I wanted you to want be to there. be there. Right. I, I knew yeah. you were going to have it covered. You were racing there too. I was racing there too. We are actually working on another story. I was up in upper Northwest and, um, I have an alert on my uh, Twitter for Keith Alexander, who works for the Post, right. and because uh, Keith is always at Superior Court, and so he tweeted, and I saw it, and then I clicked on my email, and I saw uh, the email from Leah Gerwitz, who's the spokesperson for the court, saying verdict, and so I turned to my photographer Nelson, and I said, "We need to get to the courthouse," and I literally walked in there that's a like, minute that's before like it happened. To, that's like racing to the delivery room yeah. for a child being born. Well, you put out on Twitter, Paul Wagner is racing to the courthouse, <laughs> and that's literally what we were doing. We were I racing there. Were. I jumped out of the car, we pulled up, and I ran to the front door, and I got through security, and Thank I'm goodness. running up the the staircase, and the head of security there. Uh, looks at me. He goes, Paul, Paul, you got a minute? You're okay. No, I don't have a <laughs> <laughs> It's like no, I no, raced I in there. In. Now, one of the things w- w- that I noticed, because uh, we're talking about the jury, is that when I sat down, I, I, was ha- I had time because there were still a couple of people from the families who hadn't gotten there yet. Got it. And, uh, and they had asked. Initially, we thought we were only going to get a 15-minute notice. Yeah. And the family, the Savopolis family, had asked for a little bit more time. Now, I have seen the Martin family there every day. Yeah. They come in. They came in in the morning. They would sit down in the cafe. They were staying at at, right. at the courtroom waiting. Right. But there was others. The other, uh, the Savopolis family that... Uh, um, wanted to wait elsewhere, and course, so that's what we were waiting that. for. But uh, when the judge took uh, the stand, and then they brought in the jury, when you're talking about the jurors, I certainly noticed that when they were coming and going, that they were going out s- in singles, that they were doing their own thing at lunchtime, okay. etc. I never saw any of them together. Oh, I definitely saw groups of them together. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. Well, I didn't see that. I would always see them single. Anyway, but as the door before, just before the door opened, you could hear laughter really? from back there. Yeah, it's as if the weight of all of this had lifted, and and they were trying to relieve the stress. And and what a tremendous weight they had. Yeah, but they didn't walk in like they were had the weight of the world on them. It's as if you know they had come to this conclusion. Finally, they could let it go, and they all filed in. And, in fact, three of them sat down in seats that weren't theirs, and Judge McKenna said, you need to sit in the seats that were assigned to you, which they did. And then it happened very, very quickly. Uh, and so what was there tension in the courtroom? What was Darren Wynn? It was very quiet in there, very, very quiet, until you could hear the jurors behind the door and you heard a lot of laughter, as if somebody cracked a joke and, and the tension was relieved. Uh, then they came in, but it was very tense when the judge uh, asked for the foreman to stand up. And the foreman was this man that you and I have been watching for weeks, uh, who, I don't know if it was you or somebody, uh, nicknamed him Mr. Incredible. And we and let's let's be clear, we, we nicknamed him that simply because it was a way for us to identify him. And yes. he is someone who... who Probably not a very good poker player because he... <laughs> he did not have a poker face. He did not. Ha- he It yeah. showed all over his face, as we said, incredulous right. sometimes when yes. he was looking at the defense like, yeah. you really expect yeah, you, me you to gotta believe be this? you got to be kidding me. Exactly. Those so, kind of looks. So we didn't we didn't name him that in, in any sort of uh, way. No, not in a, in a nasty in, way. No, it, it, was, was, it, was, it was... It was, yeah, a, as you say, to identify him. So because he was... He was juror mis- number six. Yeah. So juror number six was the foreman, and um, when Judge McKenna asked him to stand, 
he had the jury sheet in his uh, hand, uh, the verdict seat, verdict sheet, and um, uh, Bill Miller from the U.S. Attorney's Office, the spokesperson, was sitting just to my left, and he had the verdict form in his hand. So he could follow along? And he was following along, and he was marking everything. Um, but the jury foreman uh, just answered very, very simply. Uh, he had one-word answers, either guilty or, when it came to aggravating circumstances, his answer was yes. Yes. And uh, as soon as we heard the first murder verdict... I had my phone on the bench left to the left of me where you know we were told we couldn't actively tweet but I cheated. I know a lot of you were cheating. We it, were it, cheating. Yeah. It, it irritated <laughs> me because I was trying to be a good person and follow the rules I know. because we had been admonished before yes. from the yeah. judge yeah. and from and from the marshals not to get on our phones and yeah. I didn't want to be the one to And get I didn't out. want to get kicked out either but I I wrote a very quick tweet just simply saying Mansion Murders verdict and then I was going to write next to it whatever the first verdict was on right. on a homicide uh, uh, charge. Right. And so as soon as I heard guilty on one of the homicides that's I just said guilty right. and then punched it. Right. And got it out there. All right, so well, you can be forgiven for that because I'm sure people <laughs> I don't think anybody saw and besides, me. Besides if you're going to get kicked out on the last day of the trial. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to do that. So I know it's hard when you're in the courtroom. You're trying to look at a million things at once. You said to me that Darren Wint had his head sort of bowed. What? Yeah. And what about the defense attorneys? Did they react? The defense attorneys were just standing there, kind of upright. They were uh, they were listening. They weren't looking over at the foreman. They were kind of looking straight ahead. And Wint, he never looked left or right. He was just looking down the whole time, and I couldn't tell. You it's know, hard to tell. You couldn't it's tell if he had tell. any emotion whatsoever. Crocodile uh, tears is what they would be. Yeah, um, because he had taken the stand and he had shown some emotion yeah. on a couple of occasions. We don't know if it was real or not. Right. But um, And now other other reporters that I talked to, again, trying to look, look at a million different uh, things at the same time because it all happened so quickly. I know a couple said that they did see some emotion from the Savopolis family that uh, they did. Uh, well, Philip was quietly. right to my, f just to my right in front of me, and so I couldn't see his face. Um, and and Mr. perhaps they had hugged some prosecutors uh, on well, the way out? Or? Uh, they may have, but as soon as she dismissed the jury, I left yeah, you to try to. and get the try jurors. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see the emotion from Laura Bach and the others after that, right. if there was in the courtroom. So... Um, but I did see while the verdicts were being read, you know, Mr. Martin was sitting next to his wife and um, Mr. Savopoulos was sitting next to his wife. And um, the, we have these victim service advocates, victim yes. witness coordinators who are just lovely people. Uh, Marcy is one. She's been there every single day and they sit there with the families and sometimes they're holding hands. Sometimes they're rubbing their backs. And I did see some of that. So uh, yeah. there was there was it, it just not. We didn't see a lot of the emotion that you do see sometimes. Right. Um, there was no outbursts. There was no shouts. Uh, right. There was nothing like that. And our uh, in discussions this morning with our morning executive producer, Matt Gaffney, we both kind of agreed it felt a little anticlimactic in a way. We didn't have this press conference afterward no. from the prosecutors talking about you know, putting together this case and seeking justice for the family. And that's uh, pretty typical from the U.S. Attorney's Office because they are, um, 
they are they don't have permission to speak to us um, on the record okay. outside, and they have to get it from the U.S. attorney. And it depends on who the U.S. attorney is. And over the years, sometimes the U.S. attorney has come over and said things, and sometimes the U.S. attorney has allowed the prosecutors to say something. Now, Laura is a is a, a, a long-time attorney over there, and so she has the gravitas to be able to say something if she wanted to. Um, she has the experience. She's a supervisor. So she just made a very brief comment to us as she was walking away. But you could see the relief in her face that this was oh, over. What, uh, I, I was thinking about the weekend, what that must have been like before they put together their closing arguments. Yeah. How burdensome that must have been to think, how do I tie this all together? How do And even for the defense as well. The work that went into that's what's amazing. I, yeah, I so, tying so much it all together. To absolutely, absolutely. I mean, t the work that you had to do to tie it all together. Because as you and I were sitting and listening to a lot of this evidence, some of it we we're just going, "What?" It, it just, some of it just didn't make sense, and you're wondering how is the jury digesting Perceiving this? It, right. You know, and so when Laura and Judith Pipe put their closings together. They made perfect sense to their arguments. Yes. Right? Uh, but how they did it was uh, my hats off to them. Oh, for sure. And there is, I mean, there's a brief statement that was put out. I'm sure you saw this yesterday yeah. from the U.S. attorney. And, and similar to what you were saying, thanking all of the people that worked so hard to put this together. You had the ATF. You had the U.S. attorney's office. You had D.C. police. And... They, they they were able to put it together, but there were still, as you mentioned, a, a couple of holes. And we continue to have questions on our uh, Mansion Murders Facebook group. People still, in some instances, think that other people were involved. I personally do not. You personally do I, not. I haven't thought that for a very long time. I thought he had done it by himself. And, and the reason why I thought that this was just even in the last couple of years that since the the the, the uh, detectives did not find evidence of anyone else being involved right. no other dna anywhere no and and so you know i know these guys they're very good detectives and if they had found any evidence that there was uh, someone who had helped him then that would have come out and it hasn't and so i've been convinced for quite some time that he did it on his own now there was a question that you and I had about timing. Right. Um, and it gets a little complicated. But basically, we had been under the impression that uh, Amy Savopoulos had spoken with a man from the Sprinkler, Sprinkler Company at a little after 1 o'clock on the 14th That's of right. May. I had it written down. We kept doing timelines as we got more information, and we were placing new information in on that timeline. And we started questioning that when... Uh, Laura, in her closing argument, and others were pointing out that it appeared as if in the middle of that day, uh, sometime just before Darren went into the garage or around the time he went to the garage, that Sava Savopoulos' phone pinged off a tower in DuPont Circle. Then the theory became Darren got into his van, which he had parked in the neighborhood, and that he had then driven that van down to park it. Right. At 2300 Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest, right? Right. Then he somehow makes, makes his way back to the house, 
and um, gets into the Porsche and then drives the Porsche away and down New York Avenue, knowing that he's going to have to get rid of that minivan, otherwise it could tie him to the crime. Right. Okay, So we were wondering, well, wait a minute. If Amy's still alive at some time after 1 o'clock, right, it how, if it, it how, if it he, out. Darren, did it alone, how could he have left them all still tied up inside the house, right. driven the minivan downtown, come back, picked up the Porsche and driven away. So and the number of injuries that they sustained, how could he have done all of that between one twelve in the afternoon right. and the nine one one call right. at one twenty four? So now it seems to make sense with the timeline that we understand it because what what was probably pretty difficult for the jurors and for us too was the timing that they put it gave us on these phone calls was what do they call it UCF UTC time. UTC time which is four hours before the actual time that's four written hours after the actual time UTC is you have to subtract four hours from yes UTC yes time. right so we thought it was 115 112 sometime that that call was made and now we believe it was nine nine twelve and I did go back and find it in my notes from the from the closing where she talked about Jose Villatoro this is Laura Bach yeah. Jose Villatoro shows up with the sprinkler company right. at 9 a.m. he knocks he only hears the dog so he calls his boss right. that is David Arbor right and she mentioned 1312 and I wrote down an UTC minus Oh, four. you wrote that in your notes. Look at that. Okay. Well, she sounded frightened and scared. Right. So minus four means nine twelve. Yeah. That right there, I think, and, and a lot of people on our on our Facebook group as well, once it was like that, oh my gosh, yeah. now, now it, it makes, makes sense. sense moment. Right. And I don't know if that was a key piece for the jury or whether it really didn't matter to them. Well, because it, it all... It, to us, it then made perfect sense. They were yeah. probably dead right. before he left the house. Yes, absolutely. And because if if you're doing it alone, you're not going to leave four people tied up inside the house without someone under their... having them under your control. So right. he must have killed them, and then he moves the van because he knows it would tie him to the crime, and then comes back to the house, gets the money, gets into the Porsche, and drives away. Right. Somebody asked on our uh, group, well, this one, of course, we know Aaron Kelly. We want to know if Darren Wynn had a gun and if that's what kept the family from fleeing. We, I think we pretty much just discussed that. He didn't have a weapon. And I think even in the U.S. Attorney's Office statement, we have come to learn this was a home invasion. That's what they called it. Right. I don't believe that he went there initially to kill anyone. I think he just lost his mind, lost control of the situation. And because he only used items that were available to him in the house. That's right. Well, think about it this way, right? So he goes to the house, he has this plan, and then perhaps the plan falls apart because he can't get the money because right. the bank is closed by the time Sava comes to the house, right? So now he's stuck. He needs a new plan, and that plan is to hold everybody overnight and into the next day until he can get the ransom. The big questions that are still out there are, why didn't he take the $13,000 that house. was in the house? Did they, why didn't, they didn't he take the guns that were know. in the house? Yeah, that's very strange. Or did they not? Maybe they didn't want to tell him that the $13,000 yeah. was in the drawer because that was in the drawer with the guns. Yeah. Why tell oh, someone in yeah. your house Interesting. where there are guns? Yeah, so he's thinking maybe if I tell him where the money is, he'll find a gun and then we're all dead. 
Right. Yeah. And they're doing everything they can to try to save themselves and save their son. Yeah. They're complying with every request, even ordering him that pizza. And that's always been the biggest question from everybody and anybody you talk to about the case, which is, why wasn't there a signal? And uh, it, we have to come back to the possibility that they were doing anything to, pr- pr- to protect Philip. Right. Right? That Philip was the one part of this whole crime that if, in fact, um, Savas and Amy were going to comply with his demands, they were protecting Philip the whole time. Right. Right. That's the tragedy of it, the sadness. Laura Stenger Davis has a question. Is this case closed or will anyone else be charged in the case? It's closed. Um, the only charges that would come would be if something after three and a half years <laughs> comes out, right? Well, Darrell, I think, you know, I suppose there, there was no evidence. People want to say, well, he participated because he was doing the money laundering. But I don't think there was any evidence that he knew that those that was money from a crime or maybe he chose not to know and all of that money i don't think you could say it was really ill-gotten gains or that sort of thing all of it i think went back to the family i I mean well you go back to his testimony about taking darren to burn the bag right okay he knew something was up yes he knew something was something wasn't quite right he said he wasn't going to get into somebody's business now this is what that means well, this is a guy who's been in trouble a lot in his right. life. Yeah. And maybe that's the way, uh, you know, the underworld works. I don't know. But I'm not in that underworld. I think it probably does. Don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. You know, Keep your mouth shut. Right? Don't be, snitch. Right. So, uh, you know, Darrell, they needed Darrell. The prosecutors Absolutely. and the detectives had to have Darrell to help them in that case. I would love to know how that negotiation went down. I would love to know what was going on in the background because I don't think they initially planned to have Darrell testify. It was something that I had overheard, you know, when the attorneys are kind of talking to each other or or when they're having these Mm -hmm. uh, mini hearings in front of the judge before the jury comes out and they were arguing over something and it was like, well, we didn't know Darrell was going to testify from the defense and the prosecution was like, well, we didn't know you were going to name everybody else as suspect. Sure. Well, I, th- I think that the U.S. Attorney's Office realized that they were in a pickle when they when the defense announced their defense, right? Right. So, like, wow, now we got to get Stefan and Darrell on the stand. And there's, we have to because this jury is going to wonder where these two are. And we were wondering where Darrell was through the whole thing. Right. Until... Uh, the rebuttal uh, close or the rebuttal case right. and then Darrell shows up. Cindy Porter asked why did they stop looking for others involved? Will they keep this case open? I think we've kind of answered that question but I want to talk about there's also a lot of people that still want to say that Jordan Wallace in, is involved. Can we please just leave yeah. Jordan Wallace alone? There's no evidence. Let him go None, and live his life. Yeah. His, his life has been ruined by this. I mean I, I hope he can um, somehow Put it all behind him, but there's zero evidence that he was involved. Zero. The only thing he did wrong was that he lied to Detective uh, Todd Williams when he was being questioned, and um, and as they pointed out in the court uh, that at, at the end of the interview with Detective Williams, he corrected his mistakes. So I he didn't lie. 
the defense liked to use the word he lied and I believe in the arrest warrant they used the word lie but yeah. when you listen to him on the stand he really just was very confused and he said it happened one way and then he but even before and, and then when you when they played the interview with Jordan Wallace and the detectives you could see that he was just completely confused on what happened when and he did make a stupid mistake when he took a picture of the $40,000 in his backpack and texted it to his girlfriend and then thought oh my gosh I'm gonna get in trouble and then he deleted it unfortunately that cast some suspicion on him and also the detective is saying to him in very colorful language that he didn't believe there was any way a bank was gonna just give them $40,000 cash and we saw on security camera that's exactly what they did here you go that's right here's all these bundles of $100 bills stuff them in your pockets and walk out well, hopefully that's a picture that we're going to see in the exhibits yes. that we'll get so people can see it and judge for themselves. And I've seen the photo. And um, one thing to keep in mind about Jordan Wallace, you know, he had lost his job at the Audubon. He was he, he was uh, unemployed and Sava offered him a job. Right. And and here's this job to work for this uh, executive of, of a big company. And they both shared a love of racing cars and he knew that Sava could open some doors for him but he never asked for the job and he had a tight relationship with his son philip he loved philip okay and so here he has this job where he's getting he's basically a gopher that's right. what he is right. right but he's dressing nice every day he's doing what the boss is asking him to do and so to all of a sudden find out that wow <laughs> you just delivered forty thousand dollars in cash to a house and now the house is on fire Whoa, what's going through your mind? Right, right. Did I do something wrong? Did I mess up? Did What's happening? What's going on? And then you get there and you find out, whoa, everybody's dead? Well, I don't think he knew they were dead yet, but, but the sister... That's right. In the interview with Detective Williams, I don't think he knew that they were dead, right? I don't think so, or maybe, maybe Williams told him, but yeah. he went to police. He drove there and approached police. That's right. And Debbie Masser... Sava's sister called him and mm. they talked on the phone yeah. as Jordan was heading to the scene we thought would be to help board up a house that had had a fire and when they found out what was going on she said tell them everything tell mm -hmm. them everything you know yeah yeah so hopefully we can move on from the Jordan Wallace theories and that brings me to another point you and I had talked about this before I think initially people wanted to believe that there was some reason bigger than just a home invasion and a burglary. People wanted there to be a mob connection. People wanted there to be something sinister that was going on between Sava and, and Darren and all these other conspiracy theories because you want there to be something that separates them from you. And if that could happen to them, for no reason other than this is a guy who was fired from a job and, and he was the boss and he got fired. If it could happen to them, it could happen to all of us. And that, I think, is the most frightening thing of all. Yeah, it's you're fearful that uh, somebody who has a connection to you in your past, that there's been some bad blood, suddenly shows up at your house and kills your whole family. Yeah. Um, 
But I think what we can put to rest is this, and that is that it appears from the case that we saw that Darren Wentz's life was falling apart. Yes. He had nothing. He had no job. He had no money. He had a crappy car. The car wasn't registered, and his family had kicked him out, and he had nowhere to go. And he had no green card. He had no green card. No passport. He was a mess. Yeah. And suddenly he gets in his head, you know what? Let me just, I know where I can go to get some money. Let me go to my old boss's house. And he somehow figures out where they live, and he shows up. Yeah. And and now we know what happened. Yeah. Um, now, let's also put to rest this one part that really ticked me off, which was the sister. Right. Saying in a podcast that we had, one of the first podcasts that we had in this series, that they were drinking buddies. I have no idea where that came from, and I... Nothing could be further from the truth, and uh, why she said that, and why that stuck with people who have been following this case, you know, I don't know why, but it was a lie, and she never uh, testified, that never came out, there was no truth to that whatsoever. And we also will never know, well, yes, and I agree with you, let's just put that to rest right now. Yeah. Not true, didn't happen. No. We'll never know certain things in this case. Yeah. We'll never know the rumors about whether Darren Wynn had been casing the neighborhood. Right. That never came out no. in testimony. Mm-mm. We did hear from the other housekeeper who saw a guy who didn't resemble anybody yeah. several blocks down the street. Yeah, some angry guy who was like spitting on the sidewalk yeah, right. or something. Right. I mean, that could yeah. have been anybody. But we had this idea that he must, that Darren must have known or thought that nobody was home because it happened during the time where Philip should have been at school. Amy's Porsche was not in front of the house, but she never drove that car anyway, they testified. So I'm not sure how much that had to do with it. But you would think that you would try to ascertain that nobody was home when you try to break in. Yeah, we'll never know that. Um, I think he just showed up at the house. Maybe he was just going to burglarize it, go in there, maybe see if he could find what he could and and get out. Because right. we don't even know the exact time he arrived at the house. No, we don't. And so um, that's another question. And uh, I don't think we're ever going to know it because he's not going to talk. Yeah. One thing that did come out uh, on our Facebook page, and I thought this was a very interesting comment, was this is the kind of case that makes you want to establish a code word with yeah. your family members. Yeah, good point. Good point. What, what, right? I'm not going to say what my code word would be, but, but it definitely, I mean, you don't imagine that something like this would ever in a million years happen. Yeah. Because you'd think that if you spoke to your spouse that you could detect in your spouse's voice trouble, right? You would if, think. If you know your spouse off, that well, there's something right. not right there. Because Amy calls Sava and tells him to come home. But it turns out he didn't come home for an hour later. Was it that? Oh, really? Right. Yeah. That much longer? Yeah. That was another thing w- that I was it, surprised at. I yeah. thought I, we got the impression that he raced home. Yeah. And that was in closing arguments that he was busy. He was trying to open the martial arts studio. Yeah. And he waited an hour. Yeah. Wow. Um, so and that will be, uh, if you've never heard the phone call from Sava to Nelly either, you'll be able to hear that. They'll release that. and um, and, and he's... Tone is very even. Yes. Even tempered. Sounds like a normal phone call. So here's another thing about that that voicemail, because we've had a lot of discussion about this on the Facebook group too. Some people swear 
they heard audio clips of that voicemail where you hear a child screaming in the background. I've listened to that twice in court and it is not there. But people have posted these clips from other networks where there's something in the background. Hmm. I don't know where that came from. I never heard that in court. Did you hear that on the on the audio? I've only heard the clip a few times, um, I, but now with the advantage of being released to the public, we can play it over and over and over and over again and listen to it ourselves and to see right. if we can find out. But um, I, I, I didn't hear it enough to judge. Right. I was listening carefully when it came up again to think, well, is there something that I missed? Did I not hear it? And other people said maybe the network outlet that uh, that got this perhaps uh, enhanced the audio. Possibly. So that you could hear it in the background. But I would think I would have heard something. And then there was a question as to whether the prosecutor's office would have scrubbed it and not included that. There's no there would be no motivation for that. I mean, if you hear a kid screaming in the background, you'd want that played. Yeah. I mean, uh, where did he make the phone call from? Well, it's from his cell phone. Yeah. But was he at was he at the house already? Uh, He was at the house. already. Okay. All right. So maybe it was an animal in the background. I heard nothing. I yeah. heard zero. I don't know. So that, and you're right. So when we get the when we get the exhibits, when we get the evidence, we'll we'll find out. Let me check my computer one more time. Yeah, and while you're doing that, let me just say this because I, um, for the people that don't know law enforcement, where I deal with them all the time, every day, sometimes all day long, and uh, my hats off to them for the way they put this case together because it was incredibly complex. And uh, there was so much to do with phones and DNA and all the evidence that was inside that house. And they spent days in there and you had to box it up and you couldn't mess it up and you had to get it down to the lab. And then people had to go over it. So you're talking about um, people who are on the front lines just officers who were there who did their jobs, detectives who were there who did their jobs, Jeff Owens, the lead investigator who did his job, the prosecutors who all worked together to make sure it all fit and all made sense. Um, My hat's off to them for being able to do what they did and then to bring it to a jury because sometimes we'll sit here in this podcast or we'll be on TV. It's impossible for us to explain to you everything that went into this right. case and there was so much work that was done and and so I, I just want people to understand that these people who are unsung heroes who put this case together really deserve um, a shout out absolutely and I and I truly believe that this is going to be one of those cases that may end up in a textbook somewhere because of the complexity of it because this Winfield defense at the last minute yeah. naming two other people three other people as possible suspects all of a sudden you've got the prosecution not only having to prosecute a suspect and prove that person guilty but prove that three other people are not guilty yeah that was a monumental task absolutely you're being thrown curveballs by the defense and you're having to go scramble to try and talk to stefan and talk to durrell and jordan and and make sure they were prepared to sit there and handle all of these questions. Now, you and I have talked about Darrell. Uh, he was a terrible witness. He has a terrible, long criminal background. And But they put him on the stand. 
uh, probably a little worried about putting him on the stand because there were questions about what he did, especially um, taking Darren to uh, burn the clothing, uh, t- taking Darren and uh, turning him in, getting the money orders, uh, handling the cash. Right, you know, they were taking were a chance. There. You know, they were taking a chance. Imagine if they didn't put him on the stand. Oh, if, I think if they didn't put him on the stand, you might have had a juror or two that was not convinced. Yeah. We'd be sitting here right now still waiting talking for the jury. Wait, either, either that or talking about a hung jury. You know. Jennifer Arado Rush wants to know, what is the minimum jail time Darren Wint could face for the 20 charges? What's the maximum? Can jail time for sentences run concurrently? Uh, yes, the concurrent is absolutely true. Uh, in fact, I expect the judge to do that because he is up for life without the possibility of parole. That is the stiffest sentence that you can get in the District of Columbia. The smallest amount of time, I believe, is 30 years because he was charged with felony murder while armed. Mandatory minimum prison term of 30 years, yeah. each of the murder charges. So the least he can get 30. is 30 years. And then it doesn't make sense to consecutively put these cases back to back because if you're given life without the possibility of parole, that's what you're going to get. So it's probably the sentence he's going to get is probably going to be, you know, concurrent. Right. Yeah. They'll all merge together. Well, let's see. What does that make that? 360 years? So if you give him 30 years for the four murder charges... And then he's got the aggravating circumstances. If each charge carries 30 years, 12 charges. And then he's got the burglary charges, right. uh, the arson charges. Um, yeah, I mean, he's going to go to a federal prison and he'll never get out. So the um, question then is where does he go? Do they send him a Supermax in Denver, you know? Right. Uh, but it's going to be a federal prison because it's the District of Columbia. And once you're sentenced, he's been at the D.C. jail now for over three years. Um, which is no uh, picnic uh, whatsoever, but um, he'll be sent to a federal prison. Sentencing is scheduled for February 1st, and I think that's probably going to be the end of the case. Yeah, I think that's it. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to see anything further from this. Um, I don't see after three years suddenly some kind of evidence suddenly popping up um, that's going to lead prosecutors somewhere else. Uh, If they haven't found anything now... Uh, I don't think it's going to happen in the future. So, um, you know, Darren went, uh, thought that he was pulling a fast one. He he got that pizza. He left his DNA. He left uh, his information inside that house. He thought by lighting it on fire, it would all be destroyed. His plan went awry, and that's why he's caught. So think about it, right? Had somebody not noticed that fire so quickly... The person who called 911, the man who ran up to the door and knocked on it, right? If he hadn't have done that, if the firefighters hadn't have gotten there so quickly, right, the pizza box would have been consumed. Now, you can always ask the question this way, which is, would he still have gotten caught? And I think he would have because his DNA was on the vest that was burned inside the Porsche. Right. Okay? So they would have gotten that. Um and then you can probably make a claim that the fire probably wouldn't have spread to the basement where the knife was found and his DNA was on that knife. Right. Okay. So there's two places his DNA would have been found. So my argument would be that, yes, he still would have gotten caught even if the house had burned up. Right. And I really don't see uh, Judge, Judge McKenna was very careful in this case. 
I really don't see an appeal. I mean, maybe there, maybe you throw one out there just as standard procedure, see what happens. I, I think with the uh, public defender service, uh, the appeal is probably likely. Um, uh, it's pretty standard, you know, right. for most of these cases to right. appeal I mean, it. That's you what know? I meant. I mean, they'll throw it in there, but I don't really think there's going to be much much standing there. Well, you, you always take that chance, right? right? That something went awry in the course of seven weeks that they can point to, and some court of appeals might say, "Nah, he deserves a retrial." Well, if you believe that, go and buy a Powerball ticket. <laughs> or multi-millions. Right. I haven't seen, uh, I don't see anything that, did you see anything that made you go, we need to go talk to an attorney about this? There there, there wasn't anything that came up that I thought was uh, a legal question no. that could not fly possibly with the court the of appeals. The only thing was, I don't want to get too far in the weeds here because we're just about done, but the only thing was this girl, Ikea Williams, that ended up not testifying. The prosecution was going to call her, then said she wasn't, and the defense was very incensed by that, and they wanted to bring her back for what they called a sir rebuttal. So after their rebuttal case was over, they wanted to bring one person back because they said that she said that Darrell always texted when he was coming over, and he didn't text her until the 19th. And so maybe that's why the prosecution didn't call her and they couldn't cross on that. She was Anthony's girlfriend. Right. Anthony was the guy who made the video and that uh, Darrell was going to go and see uh, up in Gaithersburg on the 13th, 13th of May. And, um, you know, we do hear things out of earshot of the jury, arguments that are made that we can hear ourselves that the jury never hears. And I think I heard Judith Pipe's argument on that. And my recollection of it was that Ikea Williams <clears throat> perhaps wouldn't say, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that Ikea Williams wouldn't tell the same story as Anthony. Right. Okay. And that's why they wanted to call her. Right. <clears throat> and that it's the burden of the government to call its witnesses. The defense has no say in who gets called to the stand unless it's their, their part of the trial, right? And if yeah. they didn't put Ikea Williams on the stand, well, that's their problem, right? And so she's making this argument saying, well, they should have called Ikea Williams because she has a different story. But that, there's nothing they can do about that. Right, right. Because it's the government's case. Well, I think, Paul, that just about does it. We'll probably be following this a little bit as the date that comes closer towards sentencing and certainly we are going to be staying on top of I, I just checked my file and again nothing has posted yet the u.s attorney's office is going to be posting yeah, let me check my uh, email to sure. see if u.s uh, attorney's office is going to be posting some of the exhibits i don't know if they'll be posting all of them i, I think that's uh, uh, i don't the, know how those, those rules work but personally if it were my call i would not post some of those autopsy pictures uh yeah i don't think we need to see them no absolutely not um, I, I, even though perhaps the public has a right to see them, I don't want to see them. I never saw them. You saw like them. I feel like it's further injuring the family to have those out there sure. in, in the public domain. Yeah, you, I, you, you never know how someone is going to take them and use them. I, I would hate to see that happen. Yeah. What we do know is that uh, Bill Miller from the U.S. Attorney's Office is putting together a, um, a group of exhibits that we've asked for that were used in the closing argument, which include most everything that, that you'd want to see, yeah. you know? And, uh, um, you know, as we're sitting here talking, I, what I didn't mention to Bill was the 
interview with Jordan Williams. Jordan Wallace. Uh, Jordan Wallace uh, by Todd Williams. Um, and I don't know if they're including that. I, I don't think they are, but we could ask for it. That would be public record sure. if anybody wanted to so see it. So what we'll do is when we get those exhibits, we will post them either to the uh, Mansion Murders Facebook group or we will post them somewhere with Fox on 5 our, DC. We have well, the plan some, is to put them on our website. Yes, yeah. yeah. We, we, you know, we, we probably Fox need to have some DC. editorial meetings about what we will put up and what we won't. Uh, other than that, I think that ends our journey here with the Mansion Murders trial. It's uh, come to a conclusion. I don't think there's going to be any drama in sentencing, to be honest no. with you. Um, uh, it could be that he brings in a character witness or two, but his family was never there. His family never showed up. No. He had no support in that courtroom. Nobody. None. And we, well, so. we will hear, though, probably victim impact statements. Oh, sure. Yeah. So that's the drama that you'll get in the sentencing is the, if the Savopoulos family wants to stand up there and read a victim impact statement and Mr. Martin, which I got to say, Mr. Martin, he never wanted to speak with the media, but he was always cordial to yes. us, always nice. Um saying hello and goodbye, um, but he never wanted to, to uh, relay his feelings, and he didn't yesterday either. But I'll tell you, that man was at every hearing in the three years that he was there for his daughter Amy yeah. every step of the way, every step. And he was there from beginning to end every day of the seven weeks. And yeah. so, you know, you got to hand it to Mr. Martin for having the stomach to do that. Well, he's there. He's there for his little girl. He was there for his for his daughter, and and Mr. Swapolis, uh, Philip was there through the whole trial. Yes, they were. Um, and so um, they were there. They were the advocates for their loved ones. Um, you know, we and as reporters, we always want to hear from people and get their their feelings, their takes on things. But we respected them. We Absolutely. did not bother them. We never asked them for their for any comment at all through the entire trial. And yesterday, I just simply asked Mr. Savopoulos if he wanted to comment. He said no. We left them alone, and they left, and that was it. And perhaps the victim impact statements, uh, that's when we're finally going to hear from them. Right. Well, Paul, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, if you can say that, in terms of covering a gruesome murder trial. But I'm glad that you and I were able to partner on this together. It certainly made it easier for me. I hope it made it easier for you. Well, with the podcasts... Um, it's a way for us to talk things out that we, we just can't do it on television. And we can't, the podcasts allow us to, to expand on stories that we could never do that before. And so I think this is a, a growing medium, uh, a, a, a more uh, expansive way of being able to talk through things. And we can put it on Facebook, and anybody who has questions can ask us. Right. You know, because as reporters, you always want to say more than you get the time for. <laughs> that is right? true. Because you got the producer in your ear going, uh, cut, cut, wrap, wrap. You only get a minute and 30, you know. And, and we also, of course, want to thank our, our Mansion Murders Facebook group. You guys have been great. You have been with us all along. Some of you have even been in the 
trial, mm-hmm. posting your own impressions and information. So thank you guys very much for your engagement, your activity. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that you will follow along lots of other Fox 5 podcasts. Oh, uh, listen to Melanie's podcast oh, okay. on Allison Thresher. It's fascinating and it's very, very good. Thank you, Paul. Yes, that is the next one that I'm working on. It's the Search for Allison Thresher. We're two episodes into an eight-episode series. So please, guys, follow along with us in that and hopefully... There will be more to come. All right, Mel. Paul Wagner, thank you. Thank you guys very much. And we're going to sign off from the Mansion Murders trial.